Our next speaker, Mr Jens Holm, a member of the Swedish Parliament and an active environmentalist, will address us on policy change at national and EU level and awareness campaigns on reduced meat consumption. Thank you very much. My name is Jens Holm. I'm a Swedish member of Parliament, uh, representing the left party in the Swedish Parliament. I used to be a member of the European Parliament. You've seen this curve uh, before by Al Gore and others, and uh, this curve shows the emissions of uh, carbon dioxide. Uh, it's pretty scary uh, when you look at, at this curve, what happens after the industrialized uh, revolution. This is also the curve for other greenhouse gases, such as methane and uh, others. This curve is almost uh, as bad. Uh, this is the uh, increase in uh, meat uh, production in the world. And uh, Dr. Esther uh, van der Voet, uh, she spoke very eloquently and with a lot of details about this before, so I won't uh, stay here too long. I think also it's important to have uh, this background, that uh, who is uh, the biggest uh, responsible for all these emissions, for uh, the problem with the climate change? Well, if we look historically, we can see that it's the industrialized countries, it's the rich countries uh, that are responsible for almost 80% of the emissions of the greenhouse gases in the world. If we compare a rich country, probably the richest country in the world, uh, USA, with uh, one of the poorest, Bangladesh, we can see that uh, Every citizen in the U.S. emits about 100 times more than a citizen of uh, Bangladesh. So the change uh, mu must start uh, here in the Western, in the developed, in the rich world, because we have caused this problem. Uh, a way forward, <clears throat> this is uh, what I would like to share with you. When I was a member of the European Parliament, uh, I tried to get the European Union to adopt a reduction target for uh, meat consumption, uh, as well as we have reduction targets for uh, emissions of uh, CO2, I think it's important to also set up a goal. We would like to reduce meat consumption, and we would like to reach this goal by that year, etc. Uh, unfortunately, I did not manage to do that, but what I managed to do was at least to get the European Parliament to acknowledge the importance of the livestock industry as a major contributor of uh, huge emissions of um, uh, greenhouse gases. And I think that is at least uh, a start. If you don't acknowledge that the livestock industry is a huge problem for the environment and for the climate, well, then you don't have a possibility to solve the problem. My second big issue in the European Parliament was to try to abolish the EU meat subsidies, and uh, Mr. Jokola spoke about this before, and uh, he mentioned that uh, the European Union subsidizes the meat industry with direct subsidies. This is not the indirect subsidies which go through fodder, etc., with about 3 billion euros a year. Uh, this is a huge amount of money, and imagine what we could do with this uh, big amount of money if we put it where it could uh, cause some positive effect for the, for the world, production of uh, vegetarian food, uh, etc. Um, this is still uh, a huge problem which uh, needs to be resolved, and I urge all politicians on the national and uh, on the EU level continue to put pressure on these subsidies because they are extremely counterproductive. In uh, the Swedish parliament, uh, my party, the left party, um, 
uh, released uh, a bill just a couple of weeks ago, which is called Reduction of Meat Consumption Bill. And uh, that consists of a few important factors. Uh, the first is that we set up a reduction target of meat consumption. We would like to reduce the Swedish consumption of meat with at least 25% by 2020. This is a very, very modest reduction, I have to acknowledge, but there is a lot of uh, negotiations behind this uh, target, but it is at least a reduction target. And you should bear in mind that uh, in Sweden and in the whole world, uh, meat consumption is increasing. So for the first time ever, we could have a curve where it's decreasing. Uh, we need an uh, action plan for reduce meat consumption. Uh, that action plan needs, of course, to uh, include uh, the phase-out of the subsidies to the meat industry. Uh, it could also include uh, tax uh, meat. Uh, personally, I think this is probably the most effective tool if we put a price on what pollutes. Well, we do that in a lot of other aspects, but we don't do it with meat. Uh, in Sweden, we have huge taxes on uh, cigarettes and alcohol, for instance. That is because we want people to consume less of alcohol and tobacco, and I think that's excellent. But why don't we do the same with, uh, with meat? If we do that with meat, I think it's important to use the money we raise from this meat tax in order to subsidize, uh, cut the VAT, for instance, on vegetables. So normal households, they should not be punished by such a tax. Vegetarian Mondays, uh, it's coming along as a big thing in Sweden, and uh, I'm very glad to hear that uh, you do that in some places in the U.S., and uh, I think uh, it's, it all started in... Uh, in uh, Flanders, in uh, northern Belgium. Uh, we want the Swedish uh, government to support the local authorities to adopt one vegetarian day uh, a week. Uh, that would mean that uh, in all schools, in all public fa facilities, uh, vegetarian food uh, should be the, uh, the first option. In case you really insist, well, you should be able to have your beef, but vegetarian food should be the default option. Uh, green public uh, procurement, and I know this is also part of the Labour uh, parliamentary bill. Um, in all uh, modern societies, the state and the local authorities and the regional authorities um, use a lot of money to purchase, uh, for instance, food. Uh, in the case of Sweden, I think we use about uh, 50 billion euros uh, a year to purchase uh, services, and uh, half of it uh, is food. If we could set up a target there that 20-25% at least should be vegetarian food, that would be a very strong instrument uh, to use. And uh, I think it's very important to, uh, well, start somewhere, and that would be to eat less or eat uh, no meat whatsoever. Uh, sometimes uh, people uh, ask me, why do you as a politician tell me as an individual what I should eat? Well, actually, I think the most important thing that we politicians can do is not to moralize about the lifestyle of uh, individuals. I think the most important thing uh, that we can do is to design a rational system on a, on a national level. And uh, when I came to my hotel room uh, yesterday, I saw this uh, publication, and I can see it's, uh, it has the boat uh, Titanic uh, on the cover. Uh, you remember Titanic, this unsinkable boat that sunk in uh, 1912, I think it was, in April. Uh, by midnight, uh, Titanic uh, ran very quickly across the Atlantic Sea, uh, ran into a huge iceberg. 1,500 people uh, uh, died. Uh, only 700 uh, were uh, rescued. And I asked myself, uh, 
was Titanic, uh, was this ship leaded by rational thinking? No, I don't think so, because they knew there were a lot of icebergs out there in the Atlantic Sea. Uh, they knew they were driving far too fast uh, in spite of the warnings of iceberg. And what they did was that they were locking the uh, bottom floors where the poor people were traveling. So actually, the people at the bottom uh, of Titanic, they were unable to leave the boat and uh, try to get uh, rescued. And I think this could be an illustration of uh, climate change. I think we are about at midnight right now. And we can choose whether we just run all of us here at uh, different directions and we try to solve this problem on, uh, on our own. Or if we uh, want a politics, politics that is guided by rational thinking and uh, guided by collective action for a common goal. And that common goal should be to solve the climate crisis. And then I think, well, to reduce meat consumption, that's, that's one, one of the really cornerstones of such a strategy. Thank you very much. So, Jens has been a member of the European Parliament and also in Sweden, and now we have a, a, a member of Parliament in the UK, Kerry McCarthy. She's the Shadow Minister for the Treasury, and she's going to speak about the health and environmental benefits of a plant-based diet. Put your hands together. I've been vegetarian since 1981 and vegan since 1992, and I was first elected to Parliament in 2005. Um, I was lucky in that the, the area I represent, I'm from um, a Bristol constituency, and Bristol is quite a vegan-friendly place. It has a Bristol vegan fair each year, which is the largest vegan fair in, in Europe. So in terms of my own constituents, there were as many people who thought it was great that I was vegan as people who, who would have objected to it. But the world of Westminster, you know, wasn't perhaps quite ready for me to be launched upon them. Um, so it took me a few years before I actually started raising the issue in Parliament. And in the end, after a few years of waiting for someone else to do it, I had a Westminster Hall debate on the impact of um, livestock, on the environmental impact of the livestock sector. I think I said in my opening remarks that I didn't think I was the person to do that because people would think that I was coming at it from this sort of ethical vegan perspective rather than coming at it from the hard facts. But by the time I got up and, and did this debate, you'd had the UN report Livestock's Long Shadow, which was an excellent piece of work. You'd had people like um, Raj Patel and his book Stuffed and Starved, which was you know, lots of very hard empirical evidence that the livestock sector was having a major environmental impact. So in the debate, I raised all the issues that will have been mentioned today, will have been flagged up, you know, the, the fact that it takes eight kilograms of grain to produce one kilogram of beef, the amount of water um, consumption that is, is used in the livestock sector, deforestation, um, greenhouse gases, uh, methane, um, and all, all those issues. I felt like when I did my debate in Parliament, which I think was about 2000 and six or seven, I felt like I'd waited a long time to do it because I, having been vegan for so long, I was aware of organisations like VegFam that had been campaigning away on the, the green um, aspects of veganism for a long time. Um, but now it feels like I was sort of in some ways quite ahead of the curve and now it's, it's just beginning to reach um, public attention. I spent two years as um, parliamentary private secretary to the Secretary of State for International Development, Douglas Alexander. And I do think that whole agenda, I mean, 
Jens has been talking about um, how we can campaign on this in Europe. It, it seems like there's a constant review of the common agricultural policy, but it really is up um, on the table um, over the next year or so. So we've got an ideal opportunity then, but we shouldn't neglect what's happening in the developing world. And I've actually found it quite disturbing when I've gone to countries like, say, Bangladesh, I remember going to a little village, and there are these free-range chickens running around. And then we went down the road in our car, and I saw sort of battery cages for farmers. And they said, you know, look how far we've come. We've gone from just having a few little chickens, and now we've gone all modern, and we're copying you, and we've got all these hens in cages. And I think it, how, how, how we can sort of campaign on those issues and make sure that, you know, while we're trying to fight the battle for um, adopting a more environmentally friendly diet in this country and across Europe, we need to be trying to take that argument to the developing world too. And issues like deforestation is absolutely massive. There are obviously issues to do with climate change and lack of water supply. And um, we've got to do it without damaging food security there. But I do think that the way forward is not to be trying to promote a Western-style consumption, Western-style livestock sector on those countries, and to try to make sure that as as we bring our consumption down, as we move towards a more sustainable way of living, that we, we help them come to that level as well. Thank you. So um, earlier on today, we heard about the rise and transfer of animal-borne diseases in factory farms to humans. Our next speaker, Tracy Worcester, will address other aspects of factory farms. Tracy Worcester is the Marchioness of Worcester, a filmmaker and an active environmental campaigner. She works very closely with the Soil Association and is patron of the International Society for Ecology and Culture. Thank you. Hi. Now, my film Pig Business is about the corporate takeover of agriculture. And I use the pig industry as a microcosm. And that's because people care deeply about animals and they don't want to see the cruelty. So it's my way into their hearts and minds so that I can show viewers how in the name of so-called free trade, our politicians are giving direct and indirect subsidies to facilitate transnational companies to comb the globe for good investment climates. Now, by good investment climates, for agribusiness, I mean cheap currencies, low wages, compliant governments with favorable tax incentives, lax environment and animal welfare standards, and poor standards at work. For the world's largest pig company, setting up in Poland was the best investment climate, from which to dominate the EU markets. So the pig industry copied the chicken industry and crammed pigs into tiny sheds. Now, in most European countries, the mother pig is in a cage her entire life, and she can't even turn around. The fattening pigs are raised on concrete slats so that the feces can drop through for convenience. Now, to prevent their frustration from boredom, they bite each other's tails. So to prevent this, the factory farm operators cut off their tails, but it's done automatically. Now, this practice is illegal in the EU, but it's ignored by 80% of the farmers who are forced to break the law to keep up with the big giants in this cutthroat economy. Now, the biodegrading feces in these large sheds, in vast lagoons, and spread on fields emits a toxic cocktail 
that affects the health of the workers and those living downstream. Scientific reports say that these gases cause serious respiratory and neurological illnesses. In March this year, a Missouri court awarded $825,000 each to people sickened by a nearby pig factory farm. The untreated waste finds itself into the water table and pollutes the drinking water. It then goes on to pollute the rivers and the sea where it causes nutrient overload and massive fish kills. Now, in these cramped conditions, the animals are also extremely sick, not least because the baby pigs are weaned from their mothers at three weeks old when their immune system is not strong. They therefore have to be given antibiotics to keep them alive. Now, the bacteria mutates to become resistant to the antibiotics, thus creating superbugs. Now, these are released into the natural environment and to the neighboring people. The most terrifying monster bugs are E. coli, Salmonella, Campylobacter, and the pig strain of MRSA. In the Netherlands, 40% of the pigs and 50% of the farmers carry this pig strain of MRSA. And 30% of the MRSA in their hospitals is the pig strain. Now, our free trade laws stop us from saying, no, we don't want to import pork from countries that have the pig strain of MRSA. And worse than this, too, actually, is that this cheap pork coming into our countries has actually ensured that our farms have to get bigger, shoving more pigs into these farms, and therefore necessitating even more antibiotics. So we will be breeding our own pig strain of MRSA. So, to feed the pigs, we've already heard this, soya is imported from South America, thus depriving local people of land to feed themselves, depleting their water, denuding their forests, increasing CO2 emissions, and polluting the environment with pesticides. The land grab to grow soya to feed pigs has exacerbated the migration of landless people into city slums. Now destitute, they serve as perfect investment climates for big business to soak up cheap labor. So, pursuing continuous economic growth on a finite planet fuels volatility in food markets, with rising prices and food shortages. Unless regions become more self-sufficient in food, we will see more food riots, more famine. Now, the UK is a very small, very overpopulated island. So our politicians should take food out of the global free trade treaties, encourage regional production for regional consumption by protecting our farmers in a volatile economy. We need to support our grassroots of informed consumers who keep their money in the locality by supporting local farmers, by buying fresh produce from local small-scale shops and farmers' markets. They covered the extra costs by reducing meat consumption and moving to an organic-based plant diet. Now, my film is actually on YouTube, but you can also pick one up. So please take it to your work, show it to your friends, and spread the message. Thank you. Thank you.
Our final speaker in this session is Dr. Joel Furman. For those of us who were here earlier, he gave a lovely uh, and informative keynote speech. For those who won't, uh, he's on the board of directors of the American College of Lifestyle Medicine and director of research for the Nutritional Research Project based at the National Health Association in the U.S. just would like to give you a feel for the impact that nutritional excellence can have on lessening health care costs and reducing morbidity and mortality and putting together an opportunity for people to have better health than was ever before available in human history. We have an opportunity here. We're at a precipice. We can go down the road we're heading, and the road we're heading is increased obesity, increased diabetes, increased risk of cancer, increased risk of autoimmune conditions. And it's predicted that the diabetic epidemic is going to double in the next 25 years, and breast cancer is going to affect more women at younger and younger ages if the present dietary practices continue. So that's kind of scary. The word healthy life expectancy means the quality of your life, not just how long you're going to live, but whether you have a life that's whether you're fit, youthful, and can enjoy your life to the fullest. And healthcare spending has been shown not to enable people to have a better healthy life expectancy. In other words, we don't get a better life expectancy because we have better access to medical care. In fact, in proportion to the money spent on medical care, the healthy life expectancy goes down. In other words, if we look at various countries around the world and see how much money they expend per person per capita on health care, we find that the more money spent on drugs, on medical care, and doctors, the worse the healthy life expectancy score. It means the poor quality of life people have in their later years. In America, they spend double the amount of money on health care. And, of course, they have the worst healthy life expectancy score of any of the 27 modern industrialized countries. UK falls in the middle somewhere, of course, but they also have a relatively poor healthy life expectancy score. The numbers spent on medical care doesn't correlate very well. But within the United States, we can find that if we target areas within the U.S., where the most money is available and the most money is spent on drugs, physicians, and medical care access, the healthy life expectancy score goes down in direct proportion. In other words, we're over-medicating ourselves, we're getting too much medical procedures, and in doing so, we're hurting ourselves. The answer, of course, is to target people that are the largest utilizers of healthcare costs and let them know they don't have to be sick, they don't have to suffer, and they don't have to die prematurely. They can reverse their disease and they can be well. We're finding out that about 90% of the healthcare dollar is spent on 10% of the sickest people who have chronic degenerative illnesses, these diseases of nutritional extravagance and nutritional ignorance. So, of course, people with three risk characteristics, high cholesterol, overweight, and high blood pressure, by the way, those account for more than a half of all elderly people have those characteristics over the age of 65. And in those people, healthcare costs are more than three times the average cost per person. So, of course, health care costs are increasing, and the amount of people that are becoming overweight and becoming diabetic are increasing as well. Expenditures on prescription drugs alone grew 40% from 2005 to 2010. 40% just within a five-year period. And about 50% of the population in the UK are overweight. In America, by my standards, it's about 90% of the population is presently overweight. You can account for the people who are not overweight by the amount of people who smoke cigarettes, 
who have autoimmune conditions, digestive disorders, or alcoholics, or depressed, or have occult cancers. If we plot the amount of calories from unrefined plant foods consumed in any population, we can find that the diseases of nutritional ignorance, heart attacks, strokes, diabetes, and cancers, go down in direct proportion that the amount of vegetation and vegetable consumption goes up, a direct inverse correlation. And I did those statistics on almost every country in the world and showed a direct correlation. However, you can't make those statistical arguments today because now we've exported the fast food industry, the processed food industry, the junk food industry, and the meat and dairy industry all over the world today. And there's literally almost no areas in the world today that are anywhere near eating a diet where 90% of food comes from natural plant foods. So, in any case, right now, we can take nutritional science and these advances and apply it to people. And as a physician, myself and my physician colleagues, we work very hard to, to take care of sick people. And over the last 25 years, finding people that have these diseases, including allergies and asthma and headaches and digestive disorders and autoimmune diseases like lupus and rheumatoid arthritis and psoriatic arthritis, and we find that when we use nutritional excellence, when we use the micronutrient and phytochemical revolution, the recent advances in nutritional science to give people superior nutrition or optimal nutrition, they can make dramatic recoveries and reversals of diseases that are more powerful than drugs. So compelling data from nutritional studies, population studies, interventional studies, and epidemiologic studies show that heart disease and diabetes and even cancer is not the inevitable consequence of aging. They're not predominantly genetics. Nutritional and environmental factors overwhelm genetics and we have the power now to target people and to teach them the way they can have great health, never before achievable. So a nutritarian food pyramid, my nutritarian food pyramid, targets the food with the most powerful therapeutic effects to reverse disease and puts it at the base of the pyramid, and that means vegetables. The phytochemical revolution means that vegetables, beans, onions, mushrooms, berries, nuts and seeds, and, and whole grains when supply 90% of the caloric intake, can wipe out most chronic diseases affecting our whole world today. So the nutritarian pyramid, the word nutritarian, focuses on the food with the highest micronutrient density. Micronutrients include vitamins, minerals, and phytochemicals. And animal products and processed foods do not contain antioxidant nutrients like vitamin C, like vitamin E, like folate, like bioflavonoids, the carotenoids, lutein, lycopene, cryptoxanthine, right, folate, Lutein makes green vegetables green. Carotene makes them orange. Lycopene makes them red. We can check a person's blood level for lutein, and it gives us a good indication of how much green vegetables they're eating. And there's no other factors in the blood that determines the risk of longevity and freedom from disease as from a, a level of lutein in their bloodstream from how much green vegetables they eat. Green vegetables are these are superfoods. Natural plant foods are the superfoods that arm our body, a miraculous self-healing, right, self-protecting, disease-fighting body. It arms it with the fuel it needs to protect itself. The human stomach only holds about a liter of food. When you're eating plant foods like beans and mushrooms and berries and nuts and carrots and, and vegetables made delicious ways, you can't fit that many calories in at one time. You can only fit about 400 calories in. It's impossible to become overweight eating natural plant foods. The only way you could have become obese like half our population is today, right? 50% of the population in the UK is overweight now. Although obese means more than a third higher than average weight. In other words, more than one and a half times normal body weight, you're obese. In America, 
about 35% of our population is obese already. You wouldn't have an obesity epidemic if people didn't have access to so much processed foods and animal products. Vegetables can't make a person obese. You can't fit that many calories into your stomach. You have to concentrate those calories with sugar, with oil, with animal products to fit thousands of calories in one meal. It's, so if you lived on a desert island somewhere, right, and you had to eat natural foods that were, that were from the ground or from nature, there couldn't be overweight people. When you eat a diet that's rich in micronutrients, when we focus on eating a healthy diet rich in natural plant foods, you naturally lose weight and you don't desire as much food because the micronutrients send signals neurologically up to the brain, reducing your appetite or desire to overeat. So I'm claiming here that micronutrient deficits fuel overeating behaviors. It makes people consume more calories. It makes them desire more calories. There are no antioxidants and phytochemicals in animal products and none in, in processed foods. So that's 90% of our intake of calories in the modern world is foods that do not contain sufficient micronutrient load. When we don't reach micronutrient adequacy, we feel sick, confused, and weak when we're not constantly putting excess calories in our mouth. And when people try to stop eating these dangerous, disease-causing junk foods, they feel ill as well, and they're forced to constantly eat food all the time and overeat just to keep their energy level up because they can't feel well because they're not adequately nourished with micronutrients. The secret to the obesity epidemic so the disease epidemic is to eat a diet rich in micronutrients. This study, done on a high micronutrient diet, showed the average person lost 53 pounds and nobody gained the weight back. They didn't yo-yo their weight. They lost their weight and they kept it off because it was a knowledge-based program. They did it for their health, not just for their weight. Now with that, we've studied diabetics. And all the diabetic patients put on the high-nutrient diet were able to come off diabetic medications within six months. They became non-diabetic. Can you imagine if we apply this to the modern world, what it would do to the healthcare costs? When these people eat, turn to a healthy diet, they don't just feel better, their moods lift. They feel better emotionally, they look younger, their skin looks better, they age slower, and they have a happier life. Nutrition, of course, is the secret to what's where the medical care of the future needs to go. It's the fountain of youth. When you follow a plant-based diet rich in micronutrients with vegetables and beans and mushrooms and onions, which all have particular and specific ingredients which target the cell's repair mechanisms to increase DNA repair from broken crosslinks that could lead to cancer. These foods have healing properties to protect the body against the diseases that ravage modern society. The World Health Organization Conference concluded that households should be select predominantly plant-based diets rich in a variety of vegetables and fruits, pulses, beans, legumes, and minimally processed starchy staple foods. We have the answer. Now we have to apply it. Right. Um, we have a, a, a small period of time for questions, and it's a great panel that we've got here. So if you'd like to ask a question, perhaps you could raise your hand. Question for Lisa, really. Uh, you alluded to influencing your colleagues in the media. Uh, given their very short attention span, do you have any sort of real thoughts about how you can do that and how you can sustain uh, the discussion of these sorts of things uh, within the media? Yes, the media in the States and here to some extent is consumer-driven. 
So they say we need to have endless coverage of Vistar because that's what people want, right? That's what we're told. And when I go to news directors and say, why are we not talking about climate change? I'm told that is not what the consumer wants. And so the reason why I wrote my book, Think, is to change the consumer preferences. That each of us, when we buy a tabloid magazine instead of a real newspaper, we're contributing to the problem. Each time we turn on a stupid reality show instead of a serious news program, we are contributing to the problem. So it's not enough for us to simply say, well, it's the media's fault when the media is essentially giving the consumers what we want. And we have to focus on what's meaningful. We have to teach our children to focus on what's meaningful and patronize the outlets that give us the stories. They are out there. In the United States, it's the New York Times, National Public Radio, BBC America. Here, of course, you have some very good news outlets. Those are the ones you should be patronizing. I attended um, a peak oil, oil group in, in um, Parliament the other day. One of the talks was from a biological professor, does some GM work, very interested in making maize better and things like that. But uh, the issue is, can you really grow much more by intense horticulture, you might call it, rather than by farming, even if it's organic farming? As far as I'm concerned, if you see a film called The Power of Community, it's about Cuba and how they were deprived of petroleum and therefore petroleum-based fertilizer. And basically, they're growing food in the hinterland of their cities. And their food is a very, very high quality. And a lot of people have jobs. And it's not very expensive. But what it's about is having labor back on the land. Because very often, they have companion farming. So that you have plants that the insects don't like. So the insects don't go near the main lot of plants. You don't need pesticides. You don't need fertilizer because they use the manure from the oxen. And so it's a completely cyclical process. And that's what we need to look at. Thank you very much. The challenge of change on a global level can be great, but the benefits do not only provide great motivation, but also to the answer to many of the crises facing us. Our next speaker, Dr. Patrick Brown, is a professor of biochemistry at the Stanford University School of Medicine in California, USA. He's received numerous awards, including the American Cancer Society's Medal of Honor and is elected member of the United States National Academy of Sciences and its Institute of Medicine. So please put your hands together for Patrick Brown. Thank you very much. Well, uh, first of all, I want to thank the uh, WPF and the organizers for um, inviting me to this meeting and putting it together. I've certainly learned a tremendous amount today. It's hard to really add much uh, to um, what we've already heard. I'm going to uh, try to slip in a couple of um, sort of factual points. One of the challenges that we have to wrestle with when we talk about um, making possible changes to diet or agriculture for um, environmental reasons is that we still need to feed the world population. And those uh, animals that humans uh, are raising for food, they make up about 20% of the biomass, the animal biomass on the surface of the planet. Uh, And feeding them Uh, requires more than 30% of the land area of the planet. Now, one of the uh, 
corollaries of devoting 30% of the surface of the planet uh, to raising uh, animals is that uh, historically, land that was covered with forest or scrubland or uh, savanna or uh, prairies had to be cleared uh, so that it could be used for grazing or crop cultivation uh, to produce feed crops to feed the animals. Uh, and this is a map uh, showing the uh, areas that have been converted, again, from their original vegetation to uh, farmlands uh, for cultivating crops. The red and yellow represents areas where feed crops are the primary uh, crops being raised. And you can see that in most of the developed world in the northern hem hemisphere, the crop cultivation isn't crops to feed humans, it's to feed that huge population of animals that uh, we bring along with us. In order to produce that land uh, for, for farming and grazing, clearing of the land uh, released a massive amount of carbon into the atmosphere that was originally in the plant biomass and in the soils. Um, 150 billion metric tons historically. Each year, uh, as of this year, um, we produce about 9 billion metric tons of carbon released into the atmosphere by burning fossil fuels. So um, basically, if you do the math, uh, simple math, the um, historical land use change amounts to the greenhouse gas equivalent of 17 years' worth of fossil fuel emissions. Uh, the portion of that land that was cleared for animal farming represents 12 to 13 years' worth of fossil fuel emissions. And uh, the happy ending is that what this means is actually something, a point that wasn't really uh, addressed when we talk about the need for rapidly doing something that will address greenhouse gases not over the next 100 years but over the next uh, decade or two. This provides a means for a very rapid uh, actual reduction of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And the um, opportunity is sort of illustrated by this graph that you've probably seen 100 times. And every time you look at it, the striking thing is it's just shooting up. This represents uh, atmospheric carbon dioxide concentrations uh, over a period of 30 or so years. That's what draws your eye. But what I want to focus on is that it's not continually going up. In fact, every year during the spring and summer in the northern hemisphere, uh, where there's the greatest amount of uh, vegetation, um, the carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere shoot down, actually, very rapidly. Basically, that's because plants um, convert carbon dioxide into biomass, and um, we have, um, by clearing land for agriculture, there's a huge opportunity cost in terms of, of uh, that activity. Um, any land that we uh, allow it to recover its normal vegetation will immediately be soaking up CO2 and converting it into biomass and soil uh, carbon stores. Effectively, uh, the, the problem here is that these periods where the CO2 is being pulled out of the air are more than matched by CO2 generated by burning fossil fuels. But if we could um, uh, take advantage of this um, CO2 lowering ability, by allowing more lands to uh, uh, convert CO2 into uh, biomass, that would allow potentially a very rapid lowering of CO2 concentrations. And we have effectively, you could say, if we took all the land that was currently used for animal farming and immediately just said, let, let it revert to its native cover, 
effectively we would get like 12 years worth of complete negating the carbon dioxide uh, uh, rises from fossil fuel burning. And of course there's the methane uh, story which you already heard a lot about. Now, when I talk about this uh, subject with my colleagues, the uh, uh, first question I always get is, well, even if you could imagine that happening, then you'd have the problem of producing enough protein to feed the world, uh, and that would probably require more land to be cleared for farming. Well, that's actually nonsense. It turns out that the current world production of just four crops, soybeans, corn, wheat, and rice, that require less than 4% of uh, the Earth's surface area to produce contain more protein and calories than all human beings uh, eat today every year, and way more protein and calories than they need to eat, but that's another story. So there's an interesting opportunity, replacing meat with plant-derived sources of proteins to the degree that you would reduce the land area required to feed the human population and allow recovery of biodiversity and, and carbon capture ability, reduce it by more than 80%. In other words, we'd recover about 25% of the total surface area of the planet. We'd get back, for whatever purposes we wanted to use it, uh, carbon capture or solar energy or recreation or, or just leaving it alone and letting it grow. Um, that's a lot of land. Okay. Um, so you don't need any meat or dairy products to completely satisfy the nutritional needs of the entire human population with current production. So this is just last year, uh, the American Dietetic Association, which is sort of the scientific organization uh, studies nutrition in the U.S., had a position paper that stated that vegetarian diets, including vegan diets, are healthful, nutritionally adequate, uh, may provide health benefits, and that's true for every stage of the life cycle, including pregnancy, lactation, infancy, athletes, you name it, no problem. This is a, actually a wonderfully researched and written paper uh, in climate change uh, last year that modeled the economics of mitigating CO2 or other greenhouse gases um, uh, to reach the target stabilization pathway that's more or less inter internationally agreed upon, even though no one's really doing anything about it. But the, uh, the point that they make is that if you eliminated uh, all animal foods from the diet, you would save 80% of the cost of stabilizing CO2 at the level that most governments, I think including the UK, have accepted as a reasonable target. Um, and uh, that amounts to tens of billions of dollars saved for the global economy. So you're, you're actually talking about something that is a, a pocketbook issue for your constituents. Is it realistic? You already heard uh, a reference to um, the kind of historical uh, model of um, tobacco smoking. Basically, what happened about 50 years ago was slowly um, society, including the um, political powers that be, accepted that smoking actually had net deleterious effect on the welfare of their societies and decided to take a variety of strategic actions to uh, reduce smoking, the most effective of which I think pretty much everyone agrees are increasing the cost of it by raising taxes and making it harder to do by, by restricting places where you can smoke and so forth. But at any rate, the, the effect has been to take uh, something that actually I think has a lot of parallels to meat eating, namely it's a completely unnecessary but um, for many people very pleasurable habit um, that uh, people are reluctant to give up 
And another parallel is it's supported by a very powerful industry with very powerful lobbies, uh, and probably in the British Parliament, certainly in the U.S. Congress, that will do just about anything to try to prevent change. Nevertheless, it, it worked. Basically, I think that plant-based foods are more than an order of magnitude cheaper to produce nutritionally equivalent products than meat. It would be relatively easy to make it more economically advantageous for people uh, to change their diets. And the last thing I want to mention is sort of another little economics thing, which is that one of the most price-sensitive purchases that consumers make is um, purchases of meat, meaning that I think raising the price would have a real incentive effect uh, for people's diets and for industries uh, to, to develop, to provide alternative foods that people could afford. Our next speaker is Anthony Cleanthus. Uh, what are some of the practical steps we can take to bring about sustainable consumption and how can governments and industry facilitate this? Uh, Anthony Cleanthus is a senior policy advisor on sustainable business and economics at the WWF. He's founder of the Sustainability Consultancy Here Tomorrow and a registered advisor to the UK government's Foreign and Commonwealth Office. Please put your hands together. Thank you very much. Good afternoon. I know you've had a lot of data thrown at you today, a lot of information, um, and it's, uh, it's a very complex and very difficult issue fraught with dilemmas, I think, this whole question of eating less meat. Um, and as a meat lover myself, I do recognize that it's, uh, you know, it's a very hard thing to countenance this idea that we all need to change our diets, but we do. It's very important that we eat less meat. And I'm going to begin with just a couple of charts uh, going right back up to the top and explaining why we need to take a systemic view on this, not just to look at the way that we produce what we consume, but to ask ourselves, are we consuming the right things and are we handling the things that we consume in the right kind of way and what do we need to do to change? So I'll move on to talk a little bit about what the impacts of food consumption are, if you haven't heard enough of that already. And finally, to talk about some of the responses and priorities that I believe we as a society um, should be placing um, and what we can expect from our politicians. I think the problem here is that our consumption of food, of fossil fuels, of many of the things that we consider essential for daily life is actually eating up our own planet. If this room were full of bankers, I'd be talking about um, principles and loans and, you know, everybody has savings. What we are doing is we are spending our savings. We are not living off the interest that those savings accrue. Um, and if you look at this chart here, WWF produces every year something called the Living Planet Report, and there are two really key charts in there. The first one shows our global ecological footprint. So this is a measure, if, if you divided up everything that we consume and allocated a parcel of land to it, how much land or other uh, resources like uh, atmosphere would be required. And that little dotted line that you see running along the middle there, that represents one Earth. So in 1961, we were consuming about 60% of all of the resources that the Earth can renew within a single year. Now, come the middle of September, we've already used up all of the resources that the planet can provide to us in one year. So we're 50% above sustainability at a planetary level. And, of course, closely linked to that 
We are in the midst of one of the great mass extinctions uh, this planet has ever known. We have lost 30% of the biodiversity on this planet in just 40 years. And in the tropics, we're talking about 60% declines in biodiversity. That is completely uncountenanceable, if that's a word. I mean, that just cannot continue. If it does, we won't have anything to eat and we won't have anything to fuel our economy. Food is one of the three greatest impacts on our environment. Um, this chart shows uh, the share of food and other areas of consumption um, in terms of our global ecological footprints. And housing's a big one, slightly bigger than food, according to this chart. Uh, transport is smaller. Food is the second, some say the most demanding um, product, ecologically speaking, that we produce. 23% of our global ecological footprint, um, and by the way, about the same amount of our uh, greenhouse gas footprint. In fact, if you look at the UK's uh, emissions related to what we consume, not just what we produce locally, but what we import from abroad, and you take into account uh, the land use change, uh, clearing of forests, for example, to support the meat and other products that we eat, that figure goes up from 20% of carbon emissions to 30% of carbon emissions. And within the food chain, all the way from primary production, all the way through to consumption, agriculture accounts for 40% of those impacts, which doesn't mean that we should just focus on production, by the way, because what we consume multiplies each one of those impacts. And as we've heard today, you know, meat and dairy really are the primary concern here. Uh, they account for 60 to 80% of direct agricultural uh, impacts, around three-quarters of all the land use change in the world. Uh, we've heard about one kilogram of beef taking up so much water and so much more carbon dioxide than plant-based materials. It takes up a lot more land as well because you have to spread the cows out and the other animals out. And 80% of the world's soya is consumed by animals. Now, what does this mean, practically speaking, on the ground? It means that biodiverse habitats like this, the Cerrado do Brasil, which contains 5% of the world's biodiversity, um, is being turned quite rapidly into landscapes that look like this. This is intensive soya production, um, and it is there essentially to feed our insatiable appetite for meat and for dairy products, uh, because this grain is fed to cows, and it is fed to pigs, and it is fed to chickens. Um, so we are responsible for taking up about 400 square meters uh, of this land ourselves every year. This is the Cerrado as it was a few decades ago only. And this is what it looks like today. And we're still talking about 5% of the, of the world's biodiversity. So imagine the destruction that we have wrought up until now. We have to stop that destruction. And we have to ask ourselves, are the diets that we aspire to and have become used to eating in rich industrialized nations like our own... Um, the way forward. This is a typical American family and um, what they consume within a week. It is absolutely loaded with uh, processed foods and with meats. Now, I don't personally subscribe to the view that the reason poor people start eating more meat when they get rich is because they want to be like Americans or like British. I just think, you know, it's, it's a luxury part of every culture. When you get rich, it's a status symbol. It's something, it's something you consider very special. You eat more of it. Of course you do. And as the world gets richer, 
as we grow our population to 9 billion people and as average incomes set to rise, um, our impact is going to rise accordingly. If we do move towards these high meat diets like we have in the West, if the whole of the world does that, we're going to need more like three planets to support us rather than the one and a half or so that we're currently eating our way through. But if we are prepared to switch to diets more like they have in Malaysia, which is much lower in, in processed food, in meat and in dairy products, but is still a very healthy diet we can get ourselves back down more like to uh, one planet living. Uh, we did a study recently in association with the Food Climate Research Network that actually ran scenarios looking at the different solutions, uh, efficient use of energy, changing the way that we consume, changing production methods, uh, changing the way we generate electricity. And we asked, to what extent could each of these scenarios lead us towards 70% reductions in carbon emissions by 2050, which is what we believe are required? And the fact is you, you, you can't lose any of them, really. You know, you've got to do all of them. And consumption, uh, which at the moment really is, is an unmentionable word across the Atlantic, uh, if not quite so much here, uh, we've got to start thinking about it. So where should we focus our priorities? Well, Obviously, we have to eliminate waste. I mean, we waste around 40% of the food that we produce at the moment. That is ridiculous. And by the way, uh, the spoilage of food is one of the reasons why famines occur. I also have been to Ethiopia, and I've seen what happens straight after the harvest. There is an abundance of food. The problem is that a few months down the line, without refrigeration, without decent uh, transport to take that food to market, it's gone, and people begin to starve. We need to eliminate waste completely because we need to mimic nature and there is no waste in nature. Secondly, we have got to reduce our meat and dairy consumption. And in particular, uh, we need to avoid processed meats, uh, which are much worse for the environment and much worse for health. And we need to eat locally in season fruits and vegetables, far greater proportion of those in our diets. Reducing meat and dairy consumption, particularly intensively produced imported and processed meats. Consumers need to have the right products available to them on the supermarket shelves. They need to be responsibly produced. They need to be clearly labelled. They need to be appropriately priced. And by appropriately priced, I mean the true cost of producing these foods should be reflected in the end price. Uh, they need guidance on how to choose it, buy it, store it, cooking it. Up to half of the carbon emissions go in cooking the food. And we need some political leadership. We have to vote in politicians who are prepared to face up to these very obvious and very urgent and very important challenges. So, for example, we need to change dietary advice to the public so that it's not just saying how much protein we need, how much fat we need, but where we should derive this stuff from and what the effects are going to be on the environment. We need to shift the way that we pay our taxes and charge our taxes away from things like hard work, for example, income tax. Why not shift that onto taxing highly polluting, highly damaging environmental activities? There doesn't need to be a change in the overall tax system. We just need to send the right signals in the right directions. We need to stop subsidising intensive agriculture. You know, it's crazy that a packet of popcorn costs less than an ear of natural corn. You know, why is that? It's because oil is free. And if producing food is about turning oil into food, which is what it's become, um, it makes no sense just to allow people to extract oil from the ground and pollute the atmosphere without charging them for it. So we need to shift our subsidies, we need to shift taxes, we need to purchase responsibly. Um, and finally, 
We need to work with the retailers and the processors all together. We have a process at WWF called Tasting the Future where we've actually invited people from governments, all but one of the big supermarkets are there, big food producers, academics, people from civil society, and we are working together to look at the systemic barriers. What's actually stopping us doing this? And why can't we even talk about it? And now we're talking about it, we're working on solutions, and I very much hope to be standing here in a year or two's time and showing you some of the results of that work. And if it does work, hopefully we can turn this back into this on an ongoing basis. Thank you very much. Our penultimate speaker is Pat Thomas. One of the best-known initiatives for reducing our emissions footprint through reduced meat consumption is Meat-Free Mondays. Pat Thomas is Meat-Free Mondays scientific advisor, former editor of The Ecologist. Thank you. I agree with Anthony. There's been an awful lot of information today. Lots to take in, lots of predictions, lots of scenarios and graphs and charts and facts to digest. But to my mind, the one thing that's missing is the public, the end user, the consumer. People like you and me who, when we're finished setting the world to rights today, could be dragging our groceries home on the bus or the tube or looking forward to doing the big Saturday shop and wondering what to cook that will inspire peace to break out at the dinner table. And that need for peace at the dinner table becomes increasingly tricky when you start saying to people, you know what, you need to eat a whole lot less of your favorite food from now on. It's a big ask, but if you don't ask, you don't get. And so we are asking at Meat Free Monday. And I need to acknowledge here that Meat Free Monday is just one of a number of meat reduction campaigns all over the world, from America to Australia, from Brazil to Belgium. In the UK, the idea coalesced after our founder, Paul McCartney, read Livestock's Long Shadow. But even while recognizing that livestock's long shadow falls, in some cases, spectacularly short of making the sort of sensible recommendations that will alter its figures substantially and produce a sustainable global food system, it was a revelation. Paul's interest and commitment in this area is well established. He is famously a vegetarian. He is an organic farmer. He is a campaigner for animal rights. And yet what he was reading wasn't written by vegetarians or organic farmers or animal rights activists. It was written by scientists working for an international agency, people who had no real personal or ethical investment in whether or not any of us ate meat or not. He knew we had to do something, and he also knew it was not going to be an easy sell. As nations get richer, meat consumption, rather like oil consumption, is seen as a sign of progress and a sign of affluence. It's not unlike owning a big car. Eating a lot of meat sends a cultural message, the finer points of which we barely even question that say, look how well I'm doing, look how well I can afford to feed my family. But in the last few years, a convergence of research in the fields of environment, climate change, and health has shown that being a meat guzzler is just as unsustainable as being a gas guzzler. And so 18 months ago, Meat Free Monday was born in the UK. Our strategy is simple. We provide information, but we also provide inspiration. We do not browbeat. We do not harangue. We provide support through our various media outlets. We provide amazing recipes for people to try, some of them by very well-known chefs. And in this way, changing your diet becomes as much an act of, of joyous 
kitchen experimentation and creativity as it does an act of climate activism. And perhaps most importantly, you don't need to be a vegetarian or a vegan to belong. Meat Free Monday is an inclusive campaign that encourages everyone to weigh the evidence for themselves and to do their bit. And it's working. Our supporter base is growing daily. Our Facebook site is a lively community for sharing thoughts, support, and recipes. We've even taken the campaign to a special session at the European Parliament to make a plea for meat reduction to be taken seriously as a policy goal. At its Bavarian headquarters, uh, sports manufacturer Puma offers its 10,000 employees an opportunity to go meat-free on Mondays. Supermarket Ocado promotes our message to its customers via its website. The Hard Rock Cafe now has a special meat-free Monday menu. In the U.S., the cities of San Francisco, Washington, D.C., and Baltimore are joining uh, Sao Paulo in Brazil, encouraging people to go meat-free one day a week. And many of these people are responding to the climate imperative, but of course there are health benefits too. According to modeling carried out by the British Heart Foundation for Friends of the Earth in the UK, eating meat no more than two or three times a week would prevent 31,000 premature deaths through heart disease, 9,000 from cancer, and 5,000 from stroke in this country. Even former President Bill Clinton has publicly cut meat from his diet in order to prove his health. People who are reducing their meat consumption are making an ethical decision. They're also making a rational decision to protect the future. They are not waiting for the government to act, but this doesn't mean that government is exempt from action. Indeed, government is at risk of falling dangerously behind public opinion in this area. Research for DEFRA in 2006 found most people unwilling to reduce their consumption of meat and dairy in order to cut their environmental footprint. But in a few short years, this attitude has changed substantially. Now nearly 40% of us in the UK are calling ourselves meat reducers or meat avoiders, and this in just a few short years. We are the ones with the simple common sense to say, if you find out that something you're doing is bad for you, stop doing it. Government must act, and government can act as a thought leader. For instance, uh, making sense of the huge flood of data that is coming in every day, even if it doesn't like where it's leading. And it has a duty to act on that data in the same way that it has a duty to act on the data about climate change. And government must also lead by example. There is an early day motion, EDM 669, before the government at the moment, which asks for the Houses of Parliament to have one meat-free day a week. There is a great deal of work to do in this area. Ladies and gentlemen, I suggest we get started. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, We now have our our last speaker, and we do appreciate it. It's been a long day with a lot of speakers, but they've all been good. There's an awful lot of food for thought uh, in those speeches. So here is our final one. This is Wally Fry, who is the owner of Fry's Vegetarian Food Company and nominee for the 2010 Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the World Award, which is no mean feat. So, Mr. Fry, over to you. Thank you. Good afternoon, everybody. I come to you from a slightly different point of view. Um, We've heard a lot of very, very expert information being delivered to us today. Today, it's more about a personal story that um, I've been asked to speak about. And maybe by delivering that story, um, 
some industrialists or some people may derive inspiration also to embark on a similar route. So this story takes place over some 24 years. And way back then, uh, my wife and I had an awakening of the intellect, and we could see these graphs and figures already 24 years ago, and we decided to do something about it. So my name, as I've already said, is Wally Fry. I'm the CEO and the co-founder of Fry's Vegetarian. We're a manufacturer of vegan frozen meat analogs or alternatives, if you like to call them that. 21 years ago, my wife, Debbie, and I, she's sitting in the audience over here, quit the construction industry by closing our rather successful construction company and starting a quest to develop meat alternatives with a view to supplying friends and organizations aligned with our burning desire to curb mass slaughter and factory farming for the very reasons we've seen today. Being the basis of much harm to the environment, we were, I believe, divinely inspired to that extent that without any formal education or experience in food formulation, we were able to develop a small range of absolutely unique products, quite amazingly delicious and very sought after by all who ever tried them. From our construction office, we strived to make seven kilograms of products a day for friends and family. Today, 22 years down the passage of time, we will strive to produce 7,000 tons of our food products, exported to some 17 countries in the world. These products, by the way, are sold both in mainstream and in smaller organic-type shops. Now, this directly relates to the saving of hundreds of thousands, no, possibly millions of factory-farmed animals from slaughter. And I guess this small measure of success qualified me to speak on the subject of why and how I believe industry can successfully change to accommodate the ethos of environmental compassion. Now, from those humble beginnings where Debbie, my partner and my rock, and my wife and I ran that factory single-handed, weighing ingredients, operating machines, packing products and freezing them, washing up the small factory and even loading of refrigerated transport. The passion for the moral cause was so strong and the love for what we were doing so huge that great financial and physical hardships were overcome. Today, the whole family all of whom are vegetarians, by the way, are involved passionately following the same cause. We now employ some 350 staff members, all lovingly producing 15 product lines, which are approved by the Vegetarian and Vegan Societies of the United Kingdom. They are approved kosher parev, which means it contains no milk and no meat. They are approved halal. They are approved suda which is an approval by the Hindu Association, meaning pure, containing no flesh. And not only is it approved by all of the above, but it is produced from 100% GM-free crops. We make absolutely sure of this. It contains no added preservatives or artificial colorants. 
And all of this takes place in our world-class, energy-efficient factory where our management systems and facility are certified ISO 22000, which is a worldwide recognized food safety endorsement. As a matter of interest, we've just heard about Meat-Free Mondays. Fry's Vegetarian are now the initiators and the drivers and the sole funders of the Meat-Free Monday campaign in Southern Africa. It's doing very well, by the way. It's uh, gaining momentum like wildfire. We have heard much of the facts and figures and scientific studies and dedicated work from our esteemed and learned speakers. It would thus be improper for me, an ordinary person like me, to suggest ways and means with factual analysis, both economic and environmental, for modern-day industrialists by way of advice. But what is interesting, though, is that the financial credit crunch can be so closely aligned with the pending environmental credit crunch that industrialists and businesses alike would do well to note that, according to reliable sources, and we've had some of it a moment ago, we are currently in debt to the planet to the extent that we need about 1.4 Earths to fund our activities and have crossed our credit boundaries with biodiversity loss, ocean acidification, and freshwater use and land system changes. We've already crossed those boundaries. The time has therefore come for industrialists across the spectrum, not only in food production, to make changes. I'm acknowledging, though, that food production is of major concern. Now, the intellect is part of our humanness that differentiates us from animals and trees. An intellectual is not an academic, by the way. The American Red Indians, for example, were powerfully intellectual, yet they were not academics. The intellect is part of consciousness, which, if we listen to it, tells us the difference between right action and not-so-right action. I'm referring to right and wrong in the universal sense of the creation of all living organisms, not in terms of laws laid down by politicians governing our social behavior. It is a human gift of reasoning supposedly helping us from following blindly the trends and tendencies and actions of other humans, even when they are leading us down the road to ruin. Now, how does this relate to industry? Our minds desire profit. And in so doing, mind power dominates the intellect in exercising our right to free will. But if this discerning intellect is allowed space to speak to us industrialists, I say us because I am one, it will show us that pollution we are causing, that forest we are destroying, that river strangled by effluent, those gases that come from the cars we build, those cows, sheep and pigs and chickens in their factory farm horrors, those polar bears drowning, those rhinoceroses shot dead, to take the horns for what scientific benefit no one knows. That packaging we churn out that will not easily degrade. That globalization that requires us to fly all over the sky, polluting as we go, and so on and so on. Give your intellect the space to speak and it will show you all of this and more. We humans have the intrinsic knowing that we are wrongly doing these things without our esteemed scientists always having to point it out to us. Now, if each industry in the world, every large-scale manufacturer, looked at their processes in the true light of day and listening to the intellect and not the mind spinning profit, money, and power stories, if each one started a pilot plant or project bearing the planet in mind, and there is no short-term gain here, I'm afraid, I'm convinced that through the power of a more aware consumer 
and the environmentally friendly plants and their goods would soon become the mainstream. And we would be dumping our old, nasty, environmentally destructive ways on the garbage heap of bad human endeavors. In India today, the first cars that run on compressed air are soon to roll off the production line. Mom-and-pop family farm produce is soaring in popularity in the world. Some brave fruit juice producers, in order to cut down on PET and UHT packaging, are piloting bulk dispensers in retail shops. Bottled water producers would do well to follow this trend, where so many alternatives to PET exist by bulk or home filtration. Manufacturers would do well to invest, as we are, in water recycling, thus minimizing use and never creating waste water. Compostable packaging is now available. Food producers and manufacturers would do well to link into this new innovation. Investment by industry in solar and wind power. The removal of nasty chemicals used in the food industry to generate better profits. A new concept is like a seed planted in the warmth of your house. The seed cannot be taken straight out of that atmosphere until it is strong enough to be planted where it has to withstand the outer elements. So too with a new concept, it cannot just be pulled out like a conjurer pulls a rabbit out of a hat. It takes time to give it substance and form. It has to be tried out with the few before it can be given to the many. It takes great patience and love to do it. It takes dedication and devotion. And this process is what is taking place at this time with the new age. The new age is upon us. It is very new, and many new ideas and concepts are being born, and each one has to be tried out and understood, loved and cherished. When you are at the spearhead of the new age, you must be willing to go ahead fearlessly and try out the newest of the new. The challenges are out there and easy to start implementing when the intellect pervades the boardrooms of big business. There must and will be a realization of adapt starting now to the call of our planet or watch as your huge colossi grind to a halt anyway, as Mother Nature calls in her dues. My call is to fellow manufacturers to feel and understand the need to know that we are all part of the same universal energy in every living thing. If we harm it, we harm ourselves. If we help it, we help ourselves. Industry can change, and it will. The only question is, do you want to be a part of that change? When the moral cause is realigned with help ever, hurt never, profits and well-being will once again flow, although maybe in a slightly different paradigm. That, by the way, is also universal law. My plea, therefore, in closing is this. Let us awaken the intellect in industry. And by using it as our master instructor, start the environmental revolution, which will go down in history as a far greater thing than the industrial revolution ever was. I thank you all kindly for listening, and I humbly offer my gratitude to the World Preservation Foundation and Dodds for the extreme honor bestowed upon me by asking me to speak here today. I thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you could put your hands together for the panel and indeed for all the speakers that we've had during the day. 
in just summing up, I mean, this has been about a viable near-term solution to climate change, and having chaired a number of conferences on climate change, it's actually beautiful to realise that there are actions you can take today that will have immediate effect if we decide that is something that we want to do. And, of course, it's all about us as individuals. It's our choice and our chance to do something. It's then how we communicate and how we pass that message on. I'd like to thank the World Preservation Foundation and Dodds for the day. I think it's been absolutely marvellous. I mean, a number of wonderful speakers, a lot of information for us all to take in, and it was in bite-sized chunks. Again, on behalf of the organisers, a very big thank you to all of our speakers and to you for being such a understanding, knowledgeable and generous audience. Thank you. After a memorable visit to the beautiful woodland in Cunmanach, Wales, which is protected by the Woodland Trust, UK's leading woodland conservation charity, Hugh Jenkins was impressed and wanted to know more about Supreme Master Ching Kai's £100,000 contribution to the preservation of one of Wales' natural wonderlands. Hugh Jenkins is the local community reporter for BBC Radio Wales. He's also a published author, public speaker and marketing manager for Natur Cymru, a wildlife and environmental magazine. Mr Jenkins asked, Of all the places in the world, why did you choose to help this remote woodland? in a valley in Wales. Okay, so uh, if you ask why, then uh, why we have Darfur, why Katrina, why we plant trees in Vietnam, why in Mongolia, why we give water in Kenya, why, why, why many others? (laughs) I can't list them all because uh, we just do them and then we forgot them, you know? Okay, and now... It seems a very beautiful piece of wow for what I've seen, you know, in the picture, huh? Yes. And it seems like they're very sincere to preserve it. And it seems like their goal is reachable, you know, like one million dollars something. Yes. So I would really like to help them to do it. I I wish I could give them the whole money to buy it, you know. I would do it myself, you see. Hugh Jenkins then asked, so you do similar projects in other parts of the world? Oh, many. We have many. It's just that we do what we can because, you know, our planet is in trouble everywhere. I wish I could do more than that. It's just I'm an individual person and I earn whatever, you know, I can earn. <laughs> My honest money and labor and whatever I know I can help, I help, Yeah. It's no particular uh, this uh, or that. Sometimes I also have help other projects similar, but uh, we don't always list it on TV. eh? And not everybody knows, not even my uh, people knows about it. You know, we just do what we can, hmm? everywhere, according to the need and according to my means eh? at that time. hmm. On the topic of global warming, Mr Jenkins recounted how he had heard a man from Australia calling into the radio station to say, This is just part of a natural cycle. The world has warmed and cooled many times over its life, and what's happening at the moment is just a natural process. According to Mr Jenkins, the radio caller claims that the current weather patterns are completely natural and not a result of human activities. 
Thus, Mr. Jenkins posed the question to Supreme Master Ching Hai, "What do you think of those views?" No, no. <laughs>、uh, maybe he didn't do so much research lately, but there are so many、uh, esteemed scientists have proven otherwise, and they have evidence for it.、Uh, we have、uh, collected many of those、uh, information. On www. suprememastertv. com, if you would like to refer to them.、Hmm? For example, one of the scientists say that according to the research,、uh, at this time of our planet, if it's natural, then it should be cooler. At this time, at this era of our planet, but then it became hotter, so that's not natural at all. Aha,、uh-huh, against the trend, yes. And uh, many uh, of the measurements and many of the proven、uh, research and experiments have told us that animal raising is producing methane, which is heating up our planet seventy-two times more than CO two. And besides, another scientist has also proven that CO two、um, also、uh, cancel out by aerosol. Even though both of them are not good for us, but at least the thing that is heating up our planet is not CO two, because it's cancelled out already at the same time. It's not as heat trapping as methane and other like nitrous oxide, for example. Yeah, we have to <laughs> do a lot more research before we can conclude anything. And if you would like to know all of these research recently, we have it on the SupremeMasterTV.com, or free of charge for anyone to download anytime. Thereafter, Mr. Jenkins inquired of Supreme Master Ching Hai, "So your donation to the Woodland Trust will go some way to help halt the global warming? Is that the intention?" Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Many other similar projects we did, so like help people to plant trees. Yeah. In Mongolia, where a lot of desertification, in Vietnam also, because of、uh, erosion and uh, uh, global warming, yes, and other projects、uh, sometimes、uh, not listed or not pronounced, similar, yeah.、Uh, of course,、uh, wherever I can, I help to halt global warming、eh? as much as I can, but. I can only do what I can. If every one of us do similar, then we can. Help and、uh, stop the climate change and save our world. Mr. Jenkins' final question to Supreme Master Ching Hai was: In Wales, do you have any other project that you are involved in, or is this the first and to date the only project in Wales? I think it's the first one, but there's some other connected with Wales, which I、uh, can't <laughs> reveal to you. <laughs> Sometimes organization doesn't want to be revealed. Yes, when we donate or we help somebody, we doesn't really want to have our names or to be broadcast on the air. It's just embarrassing thing. It's just that because of our urgent situation right now, I sometimes、uh, sacrifice my principle to let it be aired, so that other people might know that okay, we can do something. You know, maybe they want to do what I do to help that particular. Organization or the other particular organization or some of the disaster victims, etc., etc. You know, you have to do by example. That's what I thought. Normally, we should not even talk about what we do. You know, the good things, the so-called good things. As the interview came to a conclusion, 
Mr. Jenkins inquired, "Master Ching Hai, is there anything else you would like to contribute or to say at this stage?" I would really like to plead with all the people to please awake, you know, to our dire situation of the planet, and just do what we can in our individual capacity. And the easiest and fastest thing we can do is just to become vegan, so that we don't have to raise more animals to feed them and to take care of them. And then, because they emit a lot of methane into the air, and that warm our planet, and fifty-five plus billions, you know, murder every year. It's not the way we should keep going, especially if we want to save our planet. All that land wasted, forest burned, you know, water used for animal raising, make our world become depleted in many. Different ways in water, in food, yes, air quality, and now is eating up our planet. All the evidence point to that direction. That if we stop animal raising, our planet will cool down. Because、um, the time given here is very short, I cannot report to you everything. But please refer to the website of www. supremastertv. com. We collect all the information, data, and evidence for anyone to、uh, refer to, so that you can inform yourself what to do for the planet. Very easy. Just be vegan. Every one、Thank、of、you. us. Yes. One simple solution. Vegetarianism in religion. The Baha'i Faith regarding the eating of animal flesh and abstinence therefrom. Know thou of a certainty that in the beginning of creation God determined the food of every living being, and to eat contrary to that determination is not approved. Selections from the Baha'i writings of some aspects of health and healing. Buddhism: All meats eaten by living beings are of their own relatives. Lankavatara Sutra. Also, after the birth of the baby, care must be exercised not to kill any animal in order to feed the mother with meaty delicacies, and not to assemble many relatives to drink liquor or to eat meat, because at the difficult time of birth there are innumerable evil demons, monsters, and goblins who want to consume the smelly blood. By ignorantly and adversely resorting to the killing of animals for consumption, they bring down curses upon themselves, which are detrimental to both the mother and the baby. Kasiti Garba Sutra. Be careful during the days immediately after someone's death, not killing or destroying, or creating evil karma by worshiping or offering sacrifice to demons and deities, because such killing and slaughtering committed, or such worship performed, or such sacrifice offered. Would not have even an iota of force to benefit the dead, but would entwine even more sinful karma into previous karma, making it even deeper and more serious. Thus, delay his rebirth to a good state. Karma means retribution. Kasiti Garba Sutra. Gaudai, the most important thing is to stop killing, because animals also have souls and understand like humans. If we kill and eat them, then we owe them a blood debt. Teachings of the saints. Christianity: 
meats for the belly and the belly for meats, but God shall destroy both it and them. Holy Bible. And while the flesh was yet between their teeth, ere it was chewed, the wrath of the Lord was kindled against the people, and the Lord smote the people with a very great plague. Holy Bible. Confucianism. All men have a mind which cannot bear to see the sufferings of others. The superior man, having seen the animals alive, cannot bear to see them die. Having heard their dying cries, he cannot bear to eat their flesh. Mencius. Essenes. I am come to end the sacrifices and feasts of blood. And if ye cease not offering and eating of flesh and blood, the wrath of God shall not cease from you. Gospel of the Holy Twelve. Hinduism. Since you cannot bring killed animals back to life, you are responsible for killing them. Therefore, you are going to hell. There is no way for your deliverance. Adelila. He who desires to augment his own flesh by eating the flesh of other creatures lives in misery in whatever species he may take his birth. Mahabharata Anu. Islam. Allah will not give mercy to anyone except those who give mercy to other creatures. Hadith. Do not allow your stomachs to become graveyards of animals. Hadith. Jainism. A true monk should not accept such food and drink as has been specially prepared for him involving the slaughter of living beings. Sutra Katanga. Judaism. And whatsoever man there be of the house of Israel, or of the strangers that sojourn among you, that eateth any manner of blood, I will even set my face against that soul that eateth blood, and will cut him off from among his people. Holy Bible. Blood meaning flesh. Sikhism. Those mortals who consume marijuana, flesh, and wine, no matter what pilgrimages, fasts, and rituals they follow, they will all go to hell. Guru Granth Sahib. Taoism. Do not go into the mountain to catch birds and nets, nor to the water to poison fishes and minnows. Do not butcher the ox that plows your field. Tract of the Quiet Way. Tibetan Buddhism. The offering to the deities of meat obtained by killing animate beings is like offering a mother the flesh of her own child, and this is a grievous failure, the supreme path of discipleship. Zoroastrianism. Those plants I, Ahura Mazda, or God, rain down upon the earth to bring food to the faithful and fodder to the beneficent cow. Avesta. Everybody knows that vegetarian diet is good for health and to save the planet. They will be awakening their own great, compassionate, loving self-nature, and then their level of consciousness will rise up automatically and they will understand more than they ever did and they'll be closer to heaven than what they are right now.